Hi, I'm Roxy Manning. And I'm Sarah Payton. We're the hosts of the Fierce Compassion podcast. In this episode of Fierce Compassion, we talk with Bayo Akomolafe, the widely celebrated international speaker, post-humanist philosopher, and author who, despite all his awards, defines himself primarily in the context of his family. A public intellectual known for his intricate narratives on identity, change, and the interdependence of all life, Bio challenges us to explore the need for a new paradigm for the world, while questioning the cost of using existing paradigms as we seek to create that change, including the paradigm of self in its Western manifestation. That was surprising. We talked with Bio about the relationship between individuation and the move from interdependence and how white supremacy and patriarchy and other oppressive systems are just iterations of a pattern of disconnecting bodies from everything that exists, from the whole flow of life. He shares traditions and beliefs from his Yoruba heritage to raise awareness of the larger cosmic forces at play as crises like the African slave trade or climate change unfolded. Listen to learn more about Bio and his expansive view of the world and of time. So, Bio, before I begin, even with your introduction, I want to check in with you about the pronunciation of your name. Bio, Bayo, what's your preference? And tell us a little bit about that. Thank you so much, uh, my dear sisters. Uh, so, I often say to people who ask me, so how do I get your name right? Mm-hmm. How do I get it right? How, how can I be precise with that? With that? I, I invite them to consider... Um, uh, Yoruba perspective, and I'm from the Yoruba people from West Africa, West mm-hmm. part of Nigeria. Um, there is something that I have learned to articulate as the gift of mispronunciation, right? Because ah. the Yoruba people, right? The, the Yoruba people were are diasporic people. They mm-hmm. traveled. Their their Ifa traditions became the Afro-diasporic spiritualities. So we kind of learned to see ourselves as as bearers of creolized futures, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a risk in pronouncing it right, right? (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. there's a risk that comes with getting it right. If you get it right all the time, then you're building walls that, that lock us in. But the gift of mispronunciation allows us to be met by God, as if for the first time, right? We see ourselves through the eyes of the stranger, through the stranger's incapacity to pronounce our names right. Because there's no way that your mouth, your context, your culture, your diet will allow you to hit those notes, those uh, subtle notes that allow you to get our name. So why try? Why aim for 100%? When we start with the premise of trust and radical hospitality, then even mispronunciation becomes a gift. And that's wow. so, so I invite <laughs> I invite people to be like, you know, hey, that's a that's a different way to pronounce my name, right? That's a, yes, a, a, yes. A <laughs> I I gotta say, my mind is blown right now because I'm listening to <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> I know we're one minute in. 
But I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm thinking about all of the the movement right now on pronouncing my names and writing out the names phonetically to get it right. And I imagine that there's this um, almost this dilemma between this beautiful gift that you're describing of every time someone meets me, I get to like be met with curiosity about what are they seeing? How am I being viewed and, and who am I? Versus the sense of, is there almost laziness that I'm not even going to try to approximate your name or to see who you are or to acknowledge your culture? So it's this dilemma right. that I can imagine us struggling with. Um, the thing here is that we, too, we modern subjects, um, people gestating in cities and the architecture of modern civilization, we reduce everything to individuals we atomize the world and we reduce it to your intentions and your authenticity and your goodwill and and we fail to notice that bodies individual bodies animal bodies human bodies bodies of all kinds mm -hmm. are part of larger territories of becoming right if we reduce everything including politics to the level of individuals then we will get stuck with paradigms that are premised on authenticity and authenticity, cultural integrity. These are modern values. These are ideas and values that are premised on the flatness of the world. Mm. Right. And this is not to say that they're wrong or bad or we should get rid of them. It's just that they co-produce certain kinds of realities to the exclusion of others. Mm -hmm. Right. The kind of wisdom or intelligence that notices that whether you have, whether you're trying to get my name right or not, or even if you're trying to make fun of it, something else is happening that transcends and exceeds you. That, yeah. that even in the moment when black bodies, for instance, were mm -hmm. captured, mm -hmm. right? A trickster was, walk, uh, was working using the premise of the transatlantic slave trade to creolize the master's house. Right, that it had nothing to do with the cap the the captors and the slave masters. That even in their intention to enslave, some other intelligence was at work within. That's oh, the kind of that's the kind of different intelligence and modality that is invited. That is posthumanist and animist. But it seems our politics is stuck in a game of sides. Oh gosh, Bayo, I'm. We are going to have a great conversation. And I realized that I was about to do your introduction and we just started to dive in. So I'm going to pull back oh, a little bit. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to pull back and like let our readers know a little bit about, our listeners know a little bit about you. And then we're going to jump right back in. So <laughs> Bio is rooted in the Yoruba. Yur I cannot say that word for some reason. <laughs> Bio is rooted in the Yoruba people. <laughs> and part of a more than human world. And he is the father to Alethia and Kaya, the grateful life partner to EJ, son and brother. And I love the connection to family. Like it's so important to name family and so many times we don't. So thank you for that. And then a widely celebrated international speaker, posthumanist thinker, poet, public intellectual, essayist, and author of two books, these Walls Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home 
and we will tell our own story, the Lions of Africa Speak. Bio is the founder of the Emergence Network and host of the post-activist course festival event, We Will Dance with the Mountains. He currently lectures at Pacifica Graduate Institute in California and sits on the boards of many institutions, including Science and Non-Duality in the US and Ancient Futures Australia. You can already hear from the things that he's doing where these conversations might go. And in July 2022, last year, he was appointed the inaugural Global Senior Fellow of the UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute and has been appointed a fellow for the new institute in Hamburg, Germany, and the visiting critic in residence for the Otis College of Art and Design in LA. Oh, wow. He has an honorary doctorate from the California Institute of Integral Studies and has been the commencement speaker at two different convocation events. And then, particularly dear to my heart, he has been the recipient of the New Thought Leadership Award and the Excellent in Ethnocultural Psychotherapy Award by the African Mental Health Summit. Wow, you have done a lot, my friend. So, or ha a so, lot has been done with me, rather. <laughs> yes, a lot has been done with you and through you, right? So, in your written introductions, you kind of name your ancestors and your family. And could, would you say a little bit more about your family and who you come from in this moment? Um, yes, it's it's um, my father's name. He's late now. He was his name was. Um, uh, Ignatius Abayomi Akomalafe, and we came from the central part of Nigeria. Uh, my mother is alive and, and well. She's in her 70s, and she um, she came from that part of Nigeria. Her name is Olufumilayo Ibidako Akomalafe. Um, and um, uh, we come from a line of Yoruba people. You know, uh, the Yoruba people, of course, are located in... in um, West Africa, but across, not just Nigeria, but in Benin, Cotonou, and parts of Togo, and across the diasporic world as well. Um, the Yoruba tradition is informs everything that I think about and think with today. I have um, three sisters, mm. and I'm now living in Chennai. You, you said I should speak about where I come from. There is a sense in which I think my ch I come from my children. Right. Oh, like, like my children have birthed me, and so I would like also to name Alethea and Kea, and my dear wife, who is, um, who is, this exclusive figure in the pantheon of values that I worship, mm. <laughs> EJ, and she's from Chennai here in India. Mm -hmm. Yes, I. That's that's what I yeah. This piece about your children have birthed you, it so resonates with me. I also am a parent, Micah, Annika, and Theo. And there is something about I didn't know who I could be until I had them, and I had to rise right. to meet the person, the people that they were. And so it's such an interesting right. way to think about our development. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm constantly being... I'm constantly birthed. It's not a final event, right? We, that's another, I don't want to say illusion, but that's another um, body shaping work of modernity is to, 
is to propose to us that we're fixed and final, mm-hmm. um, that we have identities. And in a sense, the Yoruba people might be the, the, the most prominent configuration of bodies on the planet that constantly reminds us that identity travels. Right? <sighs> and, and that we are ourselves only within thick relationships. Right, even the name Yoruba was given to us by a stranger. So you can understand why <laughs> you can understand why we didn't name ourselves and mm. why it's okay to mispronounce. <laughs> yes. Oh there's I, I'm I'm so wanting to just dive into some understanding about what aspects of the Yoruba people like really like what parts of the culture and the identity inform how you see the world and how you see it shaping your worldview. But I'm going to pause because I know there's some other things that we want to ask you before we <laughs> branch off. Indeed. Indeed. I'm ready. I'm here. Much of your work kind of transcends even the sense that there's a self. But one of the things that we have been inviting with our work is for people to step more and more deeply into self-compassion. So I'm wondering, kind of, what is your take on self-compassion? Compassion. So, so I, I don't, I don't think that there isn't a self, right? Um, I, I just think that this, that we are, when we think about selves, we often think about selves through what I might, for conversational purposes, call a metaphysics of dots, D-O-T-S. Right. It's 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 um, it's very Cartesian, very Newtonian, very Enlightenment like to think about selves as identitarian boxes, separate and separable from ecologies, from other bodies, from textures, from colors, from algorithms where, you know, I think it's getting increasingly difficult to think about the world in that way. I was watching a video uh, posted on Twitter, um, and and in this video, kind of, you know, traces or traces out radio waves, right, in the atmosphere, just to remind people that we're swimming in things we don't understand, like stuck our bodies against some kind of neutral background. It's that the background is essential. The so-called background is active and it's part of the plot. It's not just us, right? So in this sense, then, I see selves as relational matrices, right? Selves only emerge within relationships. They don't exist prior to relationship. Right now, we are cyborgian selves because we are interacting with our systems, with these pixels, with the colors around us, with the clothes, with the microbes that have been given, bequeathed to us by the breakfast we had this morning, by by ancestral becomings, we are concatenations, crisscrossing networks, you know, braid-like networks of becomings, right? So in this sense, then, compassion for me is not something we have, Compassion is the possibility of interaction. Uh, compassion is 
when bodies hyphenate, you know, when when bodies, you know, like a hyphen, not a bridge. Now, you know, uh, people might say compassion is reaching out to another or reaching out to oneself, a bridge. But the thing with bridges is that they predispose us to thinking that things are independent prior to their bridging, right? That they exist, and then we build a bridge. Hyphens do something different. Hyphens connect deeply. So I, I kind of think of compassion as the spaces of hyphenation where it is impossible to think except to think along with or to do except to do along with. Yeah. So when I hear that, what I'm getting is that in this view, self-compassion and compassion are almost identical that I can't have self-compassion without having this kind of resonant compassion for the beings that I'm connected to. And I can't access compassion unless I'm able to connect to myself also and hold it. And not like myself, this piece that you're naming about not siloing ourselves feels important. It's almost like if I can find the ways that we connect, that spaces are where we can find compassion and self-compassion and that they're really the same thing. You know, what what I will say to that, just to build on that thesis even more, is um, that we have a wellness industry mm-hmm. that is, what, $4 trillion and growing and is, is anticipated to cross into $12.1 trillion by the year 2050. Or even more than that, I might be getting my figures right, but it's already a trillion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. And what this wellness industry is premised on is that you need to take care of yourself. So the idea of self-compassion is there. But what it promotes is the idea of self as the citizen subject, mm-hmm. right? You focus on yourself. It's a navel gazing gesture. So I look at myself. This is myself. If I'm good, if my chakras are aligned if my body has gone to the gym, if I'm taking my supplements, if I'm good, then I'm having self-compassion mm-hmm. and then I'm healthy and then I have a clean bill of health. Mm-hmm. But the thing about that is that is happening in a world that is increasingly sicker, yeah. right? Think about the huge contradictions that, that our ecologies can melt and, and sink and die off but as long as I'm good and I'm and I have my act together, then then it's okay. Um, the kind of relational ontologies that feed my work would indicate something different. That it is in turning to to the so-called outside that we really meet ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And this is why, if you present yourself to a babalao, for mm-hmm. a babalao is a priest, mm-hmm. like a shaman, to the Yoruba people. When you say, I have this problem, I have this problem, I have this problem, uh, there's something they often do is that they ask who else is there. Even though you came alone, mm-hmm. they're like asking who else is in the room because they know that you are not isolated, an individual thing that has shown up. You are a firmament. Yeah. You are a field, an intensity. Mm-hmm. So they ask who else is here. Is the auntie here? Is whatever here? Did you pee in a river seven days ago? And and that river is asking you to be accountable for that peeing moment. It's Mm -hmm. like you are not well all by yourself. You're not a thing to yourself. Mm 
So self-compassion needs a different ontology. I I'm, I feel bad because I keep like not giving Sarah time to speak, but I just want to build on this a little bit more. <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Go for it. <laughs> Part of what I'm visualizing as I hear you speak is almost this like crystal lattice, you know, where it's like I have a structure and the structure is our world. And when I think about self, I might be one little element of this lattice. And I can look at that little element and say that element is damaged, but that element doesn't exist without the other lattices that are there supporting it. And I want to be able to fix any challenge that that lattice is experiencing. But I also know that if I only fix that and the rest of the lattice is crumbling, nothing is fixed, nothing is going to be permanent. Yeah. So it's how yeah. do I kind of see just the way that my being is completely structured and supported by everything else around me and include that everything else in the circle of care that I'm um, trying to build? You see, it's difficult to see that, especially living in a neoliberal capitalist enterprises we live in, which, and, and, and you know, capitalism as a way of organizing bodies mm -hmm. is, is not just a racialization of bodies, it's a racialization of senses, mm. right? Capitalism is a sensorium, right? And, 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 it, and what, it, what it excludes is other ways of being in relation with the world. Right. So it, it, it tells you, for instance, and I might just share this brief story that mm -hmm. that nails this, even though I hate to nail things, I like to meander and, and not nail things. <laughs> um, I think I read this in the, on the, in a newspaper while I was traveling to the United States about a woman who who went to. I'm always mixing up the names. I don't know if it's a Walmart store or something else. It's a giant store. Walmart works. And she, well, let's just use Walmart because why not? Um, it's, she went into Walmart and bought herself a bag, a new bag. And she went home with that bag, brand new bag. And she opened it up and she saw a little note inside the bag. And the bag had Mandarin. You know, it, it had a script she didn't understand. Um, she later knew it was Chinese, but but she didn't understand it at first. She sourced it. She outsourced it to the neighbors, and someone came and interpreted what was on that script. And it was basically, um, apparently, a prisoner's note. Um, someone in a prison cell somewhere in China says uh, said in that note that please, it was like an SOS. Please, I'm paraphrasing because I cannot remember the words exactly, but please save save me. We work hard to make bags like this one and and we don't get a lot of food. So please save us. Something like that. It was an SOS. And, you know, her first instinct was, how do I send money down to this person? And it's fine. Those are the agential pathways that capitalism opens out. It's very difficult to know what to do in that circumstance. But my point here is to notice that our social material structure presented her that bag as new, right? It says, this bag is brand new. Focus on the logo. Forget its entanglements with Chinese incarceration, with political structures, with the death of thousands, with the decimation of ecosystems. 
Forget all that. Focus on the logo, the brand, and the promise we've made to you to guarantee quality. So the world we live in, modern civilization, is a sensorium. It externalizes certain senses. And so my work is, is around your question. How do we come to maybe not see, because even seeing and visuality can become cost, in, uh, some carceral dynamic. We can become imprisoned by our sense of sight. So what other senses are available for us to play with, to sense into? Um, and that's the question I'm asking um, with my work. How are you answering it? Um, with my son. And this, this is a good way to go back to my son. My son is an autistic six-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And his, his autism, I have historically refused to see as, as inadequacy. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, I see his autism as a challenge to neurotypicality, mm-hmm. right? To the ways that we are enfleshed and embodied within carceral regimes of thinking and sensing, right? It, his autism upsets continuity and it invites different frameworks of playfulness, mm-hmm. you know, and meandering logics to show up in the world. So I think through what some people in the literature might call crepistemology, um, which is, you might think of as, the emancipatory gift of disability, mm. right? That, that it's in the cracks, it's in the openings, in the places where we fail. Like my son might be thought of as a failure to neurotypical worlds, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't measure up in terms of um, accepted standards of personhood, mm-hmm. right? Um, intellectual capacities and all of that. He doesn't measure up, Mm -hmm. right? And historically, the autistic has been seen as less than human. Right. But I see see that crack as a portal, a porthole that is a portal to a different way of being in the world. So my work is, is around staying with the cracks, as I call it sitting with the cracks, not trying to rehabilitate them, Mm -hmm. not trying to cover it up, but staying with them. Our politics has been, you know, most of our politics is premised on how do we get everyone to the table? How do we bring everyone into the room? And that repeats the crisis somehow, because the way we respond to the crisis is often the crisis, right? Mm. So, So the invitation then is how do we stay with those openings as cracks? Yes, my sister. I'm really very interested in how does how do you see the future? What's your sense of the importance of hope? Of yeah, just take me into into any way that you perceive the future, if you do. You know, I I, I did a lot of work with um, futurists at UNESCO, and headquartered in Paris for some time, and of course my work with that cohort was to was to find other ways of thinking about what we call what we call and this is the largely the work of my dear brother and friend dr real miller um but what we call futures literacy what he calls futures futures literacy 
And it's a way of noticing that the future isn't out there, right? Again, that's another linear temporality that feeds and nurtures our ideas of progress and the progressive subject, right? By and by, we will arrive. And that's a framework that has shadows. You know, it has openings, but it has shadows. It thinks it helps us to see things in, in terms of constant in, increasing sophistications and improvements. What it doesn't allow us to notice is how the past lingers, right? You know, it might say this futural temporality that, that thinks of time as an arrow of God flowing through the present and going into the ever fugitive future. This arrow of God might say, hey, look towards the 2050 or 2100 when we will finally have justice. But what it doesn't know how to do is, is to notice, for instance, intergenerational trauma, yeah. how bodies are not done with, how we are still concatenated and entangled with things that are seemingly done with, mm-hmm. right? Um, so so I, I speak in the cadence of Karen Barrage, my beautiful, wonderful feminist icon um, friend, that, you know, the past is yet to come, mm-hmm. right? The future, in a sense, has already happened, and the past is yet to come. And since we're on the subject of time, I don't see time that way. I'm sure that has already been implied as a linear progression. Mm -hmm. I see time as slushy, right? It's not Mm -hmm. even cyclical because Uh that's another form of linearity, right? It's (laughs) uh, what Deleuze might call the eternal return. But I see time as slushy. It's constantly making and unmaking bodies, Mm -hmm. right? Um, the temporality of a housefly is not is different from the temporality of my organs and organelles and body, right? So there isn't a single time, some imperial time we're supposed to subscribe to, right? That does something to the concept of hope for me, because, and I'll just end with this this point in response to your question, my sister. There is a story about Ishu traveling with the slaves. Now Ishu is the trickster in the Yoruba Ifa tradition. When the slave masters came and stole those bodies, bought those bodies from our people, um, it said that issue, instead of sealing the crack, you know, chasing away these intruders, he stole into the slave ship and traveled with this vessel of capture instead of shutting it down. And he probably had the capacity to shut it down, but he traveled with them. And, and, and that's something it, that speaks to something about the ways that I see um, hope and how modernity in its, in its desirous attempt to capture hope once and for all, it fosters an environment of enslavement it fosters an environment of penury and incarceration and sickness, right? In trying to brand hope and hold it for all time and say, we have hope. The future is our very architecture of ongoing hope and hopefulness. Mm-hmm. In, 
in exorcising hopelessness, the gift of grief and sadness and not knowing one's way forward. We have turned hope into a monster of some kind. And I don't usually use the word monster in that sense, but mm-hmm. I'm just for our conversational purposes. Yes. There's something really, like I'm, I'm get, beginning to get all of these threads that are weaving together from the different things that you've named. And right. one of the pieces is I'm imagining this like outcome that a lot of things are like this linear image of time of everything. A lot of these things yeah. are about an outcome, but that outcome is kind of defined by someone else with their own agenda. And so if we can let go of this idea that we're trying to get somewhere, we're trying to see the world a certain way, we're trying to make kids who are autistic behave a certain way, right? So if we can let go of all of these outcomes and we can say, what is true now? What are we present with now? And how can we, in some ways, kind of accept, celebrate, be with the reality of the present, that in some ways that's where liberation comes. Instead of, because I get to choose my own path, I get to choose my own relationships, rather than always trying to get to where someone else or society thinks I need to go. And is this part of how you're thinking about this? You can think about it in terms of outcomes, a teleology, like what's the purpose of white modernity? What is Mm -hmm. it producing? Mm -hmm. Um, But but there is a sense in which it is, it's not so much an outcome that modernity is after, as it is, you know, there isn't a stable teleology. It's a world-making process, and it's trying to gesture towards something mm-hmm. or gesture with something or meet the world in some way that it doesn't exactly have all the ingredients for. And there is no world-building process that is full or complete by itself. Mm-hmm. Let me say if, uh, uh, something about that. Whiteness I speak about whiteness all the time. And, and in fact, my next book is called An Ocean of Milk. And it's, mm. it's about, about whiteness. But it's not about whiteness as popularly understood. Because, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, there is the tendency to reduce fields to individuals. Mm-hmm. Right? Modernity is the proliferation of the individual. Mm-hmm. Modernity is the proliferation of the individual. Whiteness is the racialization of this process, right? Whiteness is not white people because whiteness also captured white people. Mm -hmm. Whiteness is the enlistment of bodies to create and co-create a world that is stabilized for individuals, Mm. right? And it has for its image, its goal, the idealized white body, right? As the default kind of body that mm-hmm. we should subscribe to. Um, but this image is constantly changing, right? Mm-hmm. It, 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 just because we call it white, it could be that whiteness takes on a new shape in the mm-hmm. future and becomes the imperial idealization of black bodies. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is the reason why I say whiteness is not about white individuals. Whiteness is yeah. about a world-making paradigm. You know, that's our difficulty. Wow. We, we tend to focus on individuals and saying white people why do you're you're the but we don't notice the web and Mm -hmm. the intensities and the agonistic fields of tensions that create those platforms and limit us in particular ways i am so juiced by what you're saying because 
the connection I'm making is also how we talk about patriarchy, right? And I can see yeah. in the way that you're describing it, it's the exact same thing. Patriarchy, yeah. whiteness, all of this were systems that were set up to prioritize individuals and the whole yeah. like restructuring our world to prioritize taking care of the individual and dissolving the connections between yeah. us. And so yeah. it's all different forms of the same thing. And it's not about yeah. male, female, or gender, or whiteness, or blackness. It's about what is the construct that we're trying to promote and uplift. Exactly. And, and now you see why critique, though useful, mm -hmm. can only get us so far. Mm -hmm. Because what critique does, and this I've never shared this with anyone, but I've just been developing from some new concept from my book and from my upcoming course. Mm -hmm. um, I call this one hypoanalysis. And I won't get into why I call it hypoanalysis, except to say that in the self-same moment, critique of a certain reality becomes intelligible. We become intelligible by the very, in the very moment we offer that critique. I'm trying to say. Yeah, say, say more. Say, <laughs> I'm trying to say here that, that immediately you identify something as a, I'm, think relationally here. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I'll take a step back and say, for instance, if you lean on a wall long enough, you take on the characteristics of the wall, right? If you knead the dough, right, you develop muscles. There's something about the tensions that of encounter that make bodies sticky reinforcements of each other, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I spend my time calling out the system, mm -hmm. I will use the system's resources and intelligibility to make the system known to itself, mm -hmm. in which case I will become part of the system or I'm already part of the system. Okay, so <laughs> right. I can be completely on board with this. It makes a lot of sense what you're saying, but then it also raises the question, what's the answer? Like if we don't name something, then how do we get to talk about it? How do we get to, to confront it? This is, this is not, the, the alternative is not don't do it. Mm -hmm. But we have to do what we have to do. We have to pay bills. We have to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say here, say here that it's not left to us mm -hmm. and we're not always going to know the way right now. Maybe all we can do is critique, mm -hmm. like we call out the system, even though we will use the system's resources to call out itself. And then we will inadvertently find ourselves inevitably find ourselves in cycles of repeatability, like critique is a double agent, right? It, it can call out a system, but it in calling out the system, it feeds and nurtures the system that is called called out, right? Yeah. This is why I say that the, that the very way we respond to the system is part of the system, is part of the crisis, right? This is why Fred Moten, black scholar, Sadia Hartman, right? Um, Hortense Spillers, Sylvia, you know, this is Sylvia Winters, for instance, this is why they speak about um, breaks, openings, mm -hmm. right? Like something happens that breaks that cyclicity. Mm -hmm. To me, that is the crack. And that crack is disability. It's the crossroads, mm -hmm. that issue. And the trickster speaks about that. There comes a time in the life cycle of critique when intelligibility becomes lost and we're unable to go around our circuits again. Mm -hmm. And then we are stuck and we're trapped and then something else visits us. 
that's the kind of politics that I'm interested in, not to the decimation or the dismissal of critique. I think we need that. Mm -hmm. I think we need to do critique, but I think we can do other kinds of politics as well. And that is Mm co-creation. That is uh, a creative endeavor that stays within the cracks and does something else. This takes us in a way toward one of the things that I was reading that you were writing in one of your articles, which was about your take on Martin Luther King's idea of beloved community. And I would so love to have your voice about that in in this context. Uh, I don't know that I've ever used the term beloved community, but I can sense what you're gesturing towards. I can, mm-hmm. I can sense what you're speaking to. Um, it, it's the... It's the history of identity politics. It's, mm-hmm. it's that in order to live in the, flattened, in the flatness of modernity, of white modernity, some compromises needed to happen, right? Um, a dear sister um, and professor friend of mine, um, Marisol de la Cadena, who is in California, she's Peruvian, in conversation with her once, we started to articulate something together um, that the slave ship wasn't the um, most potent form of enslavement or Mm -hmm. capture. It wasn't the slave ship. It wasn't the whip. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the exchange of gunpowder and mirror and Bible and pen you know, it wasn't that. It wasn't that extreme. The the real bargaining force, the economic logic that was at work in the background was the idea of the human, right? Mm. In a sense, black bodies were imported into the human as prosthetic devices. You know what a prosthetic device yeah. does? It supports the thesis, the thesis of modernity, Right. So black bodies were were imported as prosthetic devices to support, to hold on their shoulders, to lift Mm. up, to hold the premise of progress. Mm -hmm. Right. This was the subterranean logic of the human. So the human is a colonial logic. The human is a racialized territory and it still territorializes our politics our activisms, our notions of justice. I want to go back a bit because I want to make sure I'm fully getting this, right? And I'm like, just like intrigued. So when you say that black bodies were imported to hold up the idea of the human, I'm still trying to like put this in relationship to the people doing the importing. So is it that the people doing the importing and the people being imported together are what are lifting up this idea of the human and it's just connected to the idea of the self. Like when you talk about modernity being about the self. Yes. Yes. It's, it's that the human, the human is not a fate accompli. It is Mm -hmm. not a, uh, a property of any one kind of body. The human is a territory of acting, right? Don't see the human as, Oh, white, white, white bodies are properly human. And they were trying to bring black bodies into the spectrum of humanity. This is the reason why um, historically black bodies were were considered less than human, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Either three-fifths of human or something, right? They were not quite human. 
They were not mm. there yet, but they were imported to support the thesis of being human, right? And slowly they were accepted into the spectrum of humanity, but they were at the other side of the spectrum, right? Right. Even though you, we accept that you're human, you stay right there. So, you, you know, stay yeah. right there. And, and it's not the one intention of any group. It is the whole field that is this racializing force. And by the whole field, I'm speaking in terms of post-humanist forces mm -hmm. and processes, microbial, ancestral, technological, the way that sugar played a role in the transatlantic slave trade is hardly spoken about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. This is yes. this is beginning, I'm beginning to like put everything together with what you've said in the past. So It'll part of what time. I'm, yeah, it's, but no, this is like so, so fascinating. I wish we had more than an hour, but part of what I'm getting from what you're saying is if we think about, there's a way that even thinking about humans is deconstructing us, dis disassociating us from the rest of the world. So it's no longer right. like we're part of this ecology. It's what can we do to lift up this thing that we're calling humans at the expense of everything yeah. else? And we will bring yeah. in black people when we think it's going to help lift it up. Otherwise, they don't have yeah. to be and they don't have to be considered. Yeah. But it's still yeah. about maintaining this one, um, like you said, modernity is focusing on this individualization of this one species in some ways and making that right. species and the individual benefit of that species be what thrives. Exactly. Exactly. So humanity, try, the, the human is a colonial and an imperial force that mm -hmm. tries to disconnect the individual from its individuation. I'll say that again. It try, it, I'm, when I say individuation, I'm using a philosophical term introduced by um, Gilbert Simondon. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stating here that when you think about the individual as a finished product, mm -hmm. you know, that's a modern sense. You know, immediately you try to divorce the product from the process, then you have all kinds of troubles and considerations and values like be your authentic self, <laughs> you know, be, <laughs> you know, be, be, uh, you can change the world and all these ideas, you know, mm -hmm. you, because you've taken away the, the individual from its individuation, the ongoing process that never ends. Yeah. We're constantly becoming. We're trying to drag out being from becoming. And that's what the human does, right? That's what it does. I wanna, I wanna take you back though to this idea of, because the work of Martin Luther King and this concept of beloved community ah, is so important. So I wanna bring us back to how do you see this process and beloved community like this idea of beloved community, which for me was kind of weaving together and reconnecting these bonds that have been dissolved. I'm curious where you see the challenge with this. So, so maybe I'm not too familiar with the term, um, mm -hmm. the, the term as is deployed here, beloved mm -hmm. community. But I would, I was, you know, responding to my sister here about, yeah, yeah, you know, tracing this historicity, this idea of, yeah. of being brought in and the compromise of that is articulated by identity politics. Mm -hmm. It's like we say on the streets of Lagos, we didn't know we were black mm -hmm. until the white people came, right? Yeah. In, 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 that, in that moment, we became part of the edifice, mm -hmm. part of the architecture of progress. And then we, we had to mount up 
um, an identity project so that we could be recognized and mm -hmm. seen within the impoverishment of modernity, within the logic of its encounter and the encounters it makes possible, right? In being yeah. divorced from ancestrality, in being divorced from songs mm -hmm. and ways of knowing and ways of sensing outside of the sensorium of capitalism, we had to do that. You know, we, we, had to, we had to say, we will be seen. But notice that, notice that in, in protesting the suffering, the pain inflicted upon us, we are in a sense legitimizing the logic, mm. right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I need to be seen. That's a politics of recognition, mm -hmm. right? I need to be seen. And we need that, right? Mm -hmm. I say it all the time that when I travel to the United States, I, I, feel, a, I feel my stomach drop. Right, because I, there's this bodily sense. I'm stepping into empire, and I'm looking around for a white friend. Mm. <laughs> like, like it would be nice if I travel with a with another white person, because I I feel a sense of safety. I don't know. It's, it's uh, I feel safer yeah. that way. But and then I'm it also really, legitimizes it, right? <laughs> it does. It does. It's it's again. It's not something I am doing. It's something that we are doing together. Right. right. It's not even a human thing. I'm part of the effective emotional flows that sustains worlds, worlds mm -hmm. such as this one, right? And that's why I, my politics is not about you can do it, you can do it. It's about mm -hmm. what is the world opening up space for mm -hmm. and how can we gather there together, right? So um, the, the project of building community, um, and there's a lot to be said about the idea of community that, there isn't space for right now, but <laughs> but the project of building community within a prison cell mm -hmm. is at some level needed, but also at some other level troubling. Yes. And at some level radical. It, 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 <laughs> you could say that. It it is radical. It's it, it it's like radical, but there but the sense in, in which it is troubling is that we are not communities are not within modernity communities become um secretions of modernity mm. right for, for instance even in the quest to think about how we gather together like there is this u.s centric or mm -hmm. western and i speak as someone from the global south mm -hmm. that we are noticing about politics mm -hmm. and how sociality is framed in the global north mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. there's a, there's a there's a way that the value of safety, um, this idea that before I get into a space, the space has to be safe, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it, it's like a predisposition or a pre-framework. Like I would like these things to be in place yeah. before I step into a place. Mm -hmm. And from any well-meaning and well-intentioned left, leftist activist, that's the right thing to do keep the place safe so that when people get in there, there is no harm. Mm -hmm. But there is a sense in which that only doubles down on modernity's imperatives to go beforehand and clear the ground, mm. right? Even when we think we're doing the right thing, we're actually repeating territorial flows. Yeah. I there's no I'm just <laughs> one of the things I'm getting from this call and I'm actually feeling grateful about is that when I think about what beloved community means to me mm 
it actually right. feels like it's matching part of what I'm hearing. That beloved community is okay. not about like black community doing well versus white community or this global north versus global south or humans versus the world, right? It's about how do we create this, this flow where every aspect of life, whatever life looks like is thriving. Every aspect of life needs what it, what it needs, what it has what it needs to express itself, however that expression looks. And sometimes that expression is beautiful and it's what we call beautiful. And sometimes it's grief, sometimes it's mourning, but that we have the conditions for that flow to happen. And so this mm -hmm. this is part of what I'm getting that feels resonant with what you're saying. And I'm kind of going, ah, I'm settling inside myself as I think this. Yes, yeah. yeah. One yeah. of the things that I've been working with throughout the call is an understanding of the ways in which what you're saying, Bio, takes us more and more deeply into the mysteries of the human brain itself, of the ways that certain parts of the human brain make us into individuals in boxes and cells, and other parts of the human brain have this capacity for expansive being with the surprise and mystery of emergence. So, mm. Wow. You know, we could keep talking. Like, I truly... I've know, got to find like some workshop where you're at and just joining because I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> I want to ask like maybe a couple of quick questions before we end that we just love to hear all of our guests speak to. So one of them is who has inspired you in your journey? And just like name one person who's really inspired you, someone that our listeners could either look up or, or just give them a moment of inspiration. Okay, because you added the criterion of be, look being able take, to be looked. Take up, it up. No, no, take I that will, away. Then I would rather hear your what really resonates. Okay, for you. what really came to mind is my no. Okay, I'm going to do two persons. No, three persons. Okay, I'm going to do three persons. Okay, the the first is my son Kea, mm -hmm. who is like I said, um, a prophet. My wife thinks of him as a prophet, as I do, a wild prophet. And I remember her telling me yeah. that to take some clinical psychologist by training. And she basically says, hey, don't don't use the word meltdown. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have meltdowns. Um, instead, think of these big moments, these big feelings that he experiences and we experience in a secondary way, think of them as the passing of a wild God, mm. right? Like a, an opportunity to build an altar. And that yeah. is, in a nutshell, my politics. So yeah. um, I'm constantly disrupted, challenged, defeated, inspired, um, invited, discarded again and again by my son's presence. Um, and like my daughter, who is a second person, mm -hmm. who is a wild genius of a poet and wants to be, you know, loves her dad and wants to do things that, that, um, she can run, rush up to me and show me and speak to me about, um, she inspires me and she's a very focus of my first book, um, yeah. these Wilds beyond our senses. Um, and my wife, who is my goddess. <laughs> so that rounds up the three. 
Um, but I will say one more person, and maybe this is an introduction to this person, might be new for most persons listening right now. Fernand Delimi, and I think he lived from the 20s to the, to the 90s. Mm. Um, uh, he was a French visionary, um, did, was active during the, the Second World War um, uh, in terms of supporting children who were on the spectrum, you know, special kids. And he would take um, children away from the asylum because they would just dump them in the asylum mm -hmm. in France, the Vichy regime. They would dump them in the asylum and he would take them out. And his argument was that what if these children are not supposed to be fixed? What if mm -hmm. we are supposed to be fixed? What if <laughs> language is getting in the way of mm -hmm. us noticing what they are sensing. Mm -hmm. And so he built a renegade community in the 60s in the south of France where autistic children were allowed to be themselves wow. to roam. Mm -hmm. And he banned language from every speaking person. Every speaking person was forbidden to speak, to use language. Wow. And they would follow the kids in the community. They would follow the kids as they wandered about. And one day they followed a kid called Jean-Marie. And I'll end it here. They follow a kid called Jean-Marie and he'll go around in circles and they will just trace his movements. He oh. went round and round in circles and they found out that this kid, this autistic kid in his 20s, was <laughs> listening to the sound of underground water that no one else could hear. Wow. He was sensing it with his body. So this is what I mean by a sensorium and how yeah. Yeah. the seemingly disabled is alive to other senses. Oh, my God. I gave you four. Oh, thank you. And I'm gonna I'm gonna write you to get the name of that last person so we could make sure our listeners can find it. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Um, thank you. So as we're coming to a close, what actions would you like to invite folks to take? And of course, how can they find you to be able to follow you? Um well the traditional modes are are the lowest hanging fruit here. You can find my name in Google, and my website is there. I'm running a course called We Will Dance With Mountains if you want to join. It's about 2,000 people, um, but we're running from September to December, and it's an exploration of these conversations we've just had. And I would just say the times are urgent. Let us listen. Let us slow down. Let us um, be in touch in different ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for being with us. Please support this work in the world by going to our website, antiracistconversations.com. You'll learn how to purchase our new books, how to have anti-racist conversations and the anti-racist heart, and learn about upcoming podcast guests and new classes. And if you're like me, you might want to listen to this conversation several times <laughs> and you can also do that on the website so Bayo, it was such a, a, a delight and an honor to get to talk with you thanks for being with us thank you i wish you had more time but there you go yes thank you so much and thank you i also just want to echo sarah's appreciation this has been an even more than i could have anticipated pleasure thank you